Hey everyone, uh, this is Steve. Uh, we are, uh, me and Ian, we're, we're talking right now. It's Thursday morning. Uh, we actually recorded our episode a day early this week. We recorded on Wednesday. And uh, we're going to get to the regular episode here in a minute. But uh, Ian and I wanted to have a conversation here about the Pitchfork news. Uh, th- th- this came down... Man, maybe like two or three hours after we stopped <laughs> recording our episode this week. We normally would have caught it, uh, but I had to reschedule uh, this week for reasons that maybe I'll talk about next week. It doesn't seem appropriate to talk about right now. But anyway, um, for those who don't know, it was announced on Thursday, uh, or on Wednesday, I should say, that um, Pitchfork is being folded into GQ. Uh, both publications, of course, are owned by Condé Nast. Uh, there were major layoffs at Pitchfork. It's unclear to me. I, I believe that there are still some staffers at Pitchfork, uh, but some longtime people were let go. Uh, people who had been there for almost 20 years, thinking yeah, of longer than even me. Yeah, people like Amy Phillips, uh, Ryan Domble, uh, as well as some other staffers there. Of course, Ian and I send out. Uh, our support and love uh, to those uh, who were who lost their jobs this week. That's a terrible thing. Although they're all very talented and very experienced uh, people, I have uh, faith and expectation that they are going to land somewhere and and be just fine. But um, the state of Pitchfork right now is in flux, to state to uh, say the least. Uh, as we are recording right now. Uh, there were no new reviews posted today. There actually, there actually is. Uh, oh, there I, is now. Yeah, because like I, one of the things I was wondering is if you know Pitchfork was going to be stuck in this rictus grin for for eternity with that Twenty One Savage review being the last thing ever published. But today they have a Bruiser Wolf uh, review up, and they have some news pieces. So. Because uh, I didn't I, go up right at midnight as usual. No. I don't think because I know people were checking, and there's also. <laughs> Uh, you know, they stopped tweeting for a while. I, I, I don't know if they're doing that again. I mean, they laid off so many people that it's almost unclear, like, who's even there to run the site at, at the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, clearly Pitchfork is a very important publication, particularly in indie music. Um, you know, are they still going to exist? Is it going to be GQ Pitchfork? Is it going to be the GQ Music Festival in Chicago now? Uh, I don't know. I, I was talking with a friend yesterday, and he was speculating that it might be like the New York Times and the, and the Athletic, where the Athletic became the de facto sports section of the New York Times. The New York Times got rid of their old sports section. But this is in reverse, hmm. where Pitchfork, you know, the vertical is being hollowed out and being subsumed into, into a GQ. So that, uh, it's unclear what's going to happen there. Who knows if even Condé Nast knows what they're going to do. But um, I want to hear from you, Ian. I mean, look, I've written for Pitchfork in the past, but I don't consider myself a Pitchfork writer. You know, I the things I wrote, I think I've got somewhere between a dozen and maybe 18 bylines or something. <laughs> this I've dabbled there uh, in the past. Happy to have written for them, of course. But you've you've been a fixture of the place for a long time. I'm just wondering, like, what are your feelings right now, uh, you know, in the aftermath of this whole thing? Yeah, I, I, you use the term "folded into GQ." I think we have to 
you know, take uh, Anna Wintour at her word and say that the it's been evolved into GQ. Yeah, that's uh, what she said in her statement. <laughs> it was a very vague statement. Um, yeah, it's been evolved into GQ. We have assessed Pitchfork's performance. We feel that GQ does great music coverage and Pitchfork does great music coverage and we can essentially reduce redundancies. I mean, she didn't use that term, but that mm-hmm. was the implication of, of the statement that was put out. Like, it's, it's, it's quite literally breaking up with somebody and saying that we're evolving our relationship, just that you're, like, <laughs> no longer a part of it. it I mean, <laughs> it, it, as far as, like, how this actually happened, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, oh, the past five years, let's call it, I've been kind of in a slow motion grieving process of, yeah, of, uh, of, I guess, not being as much a part of the site as a writer or as like a target demographic. Uh, because yeah, I mean, as I said on Twitter yesterday, like I cannot, it feels weird to say this, but I think it's ultimately true that I cannot think of like something that's been this much of a fixture a constant in my life over the past 25 years and maybe even more. I mean, I distinct memories of being in the college library because I didn't have the internet in the place I lived reading about emergency and I in 1999. Mm. Uh, like, I, I mean, going back as far or as, as far back as like almost the site itself. And, um, you know, I, I've written, I think, more reviews. Actually, I know. I've written more reviews for the site than, like, anyone else in the site's history by a factor of a lot. Um, so, you're yeah. The, you're, I mean, you're, you're the Pete Rose of Pitchfork. Uh, yeah. You are the batting champion yeah. of that site. And, uh, you know, some people reached out to me yesterday saying, like, hey, man, like, you know, uh, how how you feeling about it? And, um, I mean, look, I've... I wrote maybe eight or so reviews last year. Um, you know, my heart obviously goes out more to the people whose like livelihood is endangered by this evolution, as it were. And um, you know, like I, I, I've come gotten used to the concept that a lot of like what's happened over the past, I don't know, decade or so has been a shift away from a lot of the music and the kind of writing style that I did. So it was a little hard not to like personalize that in a way that wasn't particularly healthy but i think ultimately the direction it was headed was kind of necessary you know it's um it's i don't think it was ever oh we gotta like change up our coverage to you know get those clicks or whatever i think people ascribe far 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 too high of uh ideals and conspiracies to this place and they have from time immemorial but I think it just had to evolve. It evolved in a way that like was in lockstep with music as a whole. So um, I'm not like the type who's going to say, well, they had it coming because they started covering, you know, Taylor Swift or whatever. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, because that, because that's come up, you yeah. know, people saying like, oh, they're using like the optimism word, like they would pop and like now they're being punished for it, which is like a ridiculous thing to say do you really think that pitchfork would have been in a better position if they were just covering indie rock in 2024 like is there a thought like oh the money would have been rolling in big time (laughs) if they had just done that i mean it's totally illogical yeah and if you and you've seen chatter about this already uh you know from people in the know at conde nast uh there was a person uh from the company uh, who who tweeted about this, talking about how Pitchfork had really good traffic. They were yeah. among the most well-trafficked uh, titles in the Condé Nast uh, stable of, of titles. And 
you know, from what I understand, they were profitable. They were, they were, this was not a site on the way out. They were doing well. The situation here, I think, is the sale to Condé Nast to begin with in 2015. And look, we're going to find out more about this as the days go on. And, you know, there's a lot that we don't know as, as outsiders here. But looking at it from, you know, the outside looking in, um, it just feels like Pitchfork started in Ryan Schreiber's basement. It grew because there were people who were passionate about the site. It was an independent place. It did really well, but it was a relatively small endeavor. It wasn't a huge staff. You know, there wasn't a huge business apparatus with it. They were able to uh, thrive because it was a popular site and they were operating on, I'm guessing, relatively small profit margins. <laughs> yeah, they, they, weren't, they weren't paying their writers until like 2005 or six. And then there was that window of time, I guess from 06 to, you know, 15, where it seems like from the business perspective maybe of that site like they were doing really well i mean they were growing they were trying different sites there was altered zones <laughs> there was the uh uh the film site with the uh with the my dissolve. ex shout to the major i was there for all of them my colleagues from the av club started that place after the av club imploded um and they were thriving and you get into a corporate situation at Condé nast and look i looked this up this morning do you know where Condé nast's offices are it's like in world. It's like in the one world trade, or like what the former one world trade yeah. center is, right? One world trade center. Now, I'm yeah. not an expert on uh, office uh, rentals, uh, but I'm willing to bet that the rent in the world trade center is among the highest in the world. So, just imagine the amount of money Condé Nast has to make just to pay their rent in this office building. That to me signals a sign of delusion in the 21st century, that Condé Nast is an old publishing company that still has tremendous overhead and is paying for this, I would say, unnecessary infrastructure that just sucks up so much money. You have these old school uh, executives there, editors, whoever, who are, I'm sure, pretending like it's still 1992. <laughs> you know, you've got the expense account, you're showing up at these events, uh, just spending tremendous amounts of money, throwing money away, essentially. And you just think of, like, how many staffers could have been paid with the money that still gets thrown away at a company like Condé Nast because they don't want to accept that realities have changed. And if you want to be a successful publishing company in this era, you have to operate smaller. You have to be leaner. You have to be smarter with where you spend your money. And, you know, I, I just feel like, because of those poor decisions, things like this happen. You have a company that, like, look, Anna Wintour, do you think she's ever read Pitchfork? Do you think she has any affinity <laughs> for this site? She doesn't care. There's no, there's no personal connection. You're thinking it's like Mr. Burns waking up from, like, his ether delusions, realizing he's financed the pen pals. Yeah, it's like a line on a on a spreadsheet, you know? It's like a rounding it, it, error. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no personal connection there. And, you know... It's great up front. You get the money from this company. You get the prestige. You know, being in the Condé Nast stable, it put Pitchfork in a strata where now they're getting national magazine awards. Because, you know, in order to get a national magazine award, you have to be in that cabal 
of media titles that are considered prestigious enough. And mm-hmm. Kind of Ask gives you that prestige, and that's great. But the negative side of that is that uh, you're in a bloated company, and it's filled with people who don't care about where you come from. <laughs> They're not, care- <laughs> you know, I, you know, like Anna Wintour wasn't listening to Deer Hunter in 2008. And, that's untrue. You know, she-, she sent me a personal note thanking me for putting her on to Hotline TNT. I think we got to give Anna some credit here. I mean, I just know, like, for me, you know, I think that in 2024, I mean, if we're going to look at Pitchfork, if we're going to, like, look at this in a big picture sense, I think it's really hard to be a website that only covers music. Absolutely. And I was a little surprised that Pitchfork didn't make the pivot to, like, doing tv and movie coverage i mean they they i feel like they dabbled in that a little bit absolutely but you know looking at my own career like i've never worked at a place that only wrote about music like i worked at the av club and that was primarily known for tv and movie writing and they did music too but tv and movie brought a lot of people in i worked at grantland sports Mm. obviously as, as well as other pop culture up rocks i mean Music is a big part of what we do, but like, so is food writing and travel <laughs> writing and TV and movie and sports. And not only does that just bring in more eyeballs, it also attracts different kinds of advertisers, you know? Yeah. And if you're going to just be at a music audience, I think that's really hard to do. And the only way to me that you can survive as a music only website is to go back to what Pitchfork was in the beginning the, a small site you know, narrow profit margins, you you don't spend a lot of money, you you operate small. And I think that can work. I think you can actually probably make a pretty good living doing something like that if someone wants to take that up. But to get sucked into a machine like Condé Nast, I just think, I don't want to say it's inevitable, mm-hmm. but that personal element, that investment that the people running the place had at the beginning, I, I just think that gets diluted when you get sucked into that kind of place where you know they're not coming from the same place that this site came from in the beginning yeah i mean i think we all kind of recognize that something like this might occur eventually at with the Condé Nast sale or just that i mean because it was doing pretty well and also like i think compared to some of the other uh, titles under that uh, umbrella. It probably works on a much, much, much smaller overhead than, say, like Vogue or whatever. But, you know, I think the reason that this seems so much more of an end of times uh, affair than it otherwise would be if it was just, you know, the usual, like, hey, we're cutting staff is the fold into GQ. Um, I think that was just like kind of a final insult because I like. I I wonder how this would be received if it was, say, folded into Teen Vogue, because a lot of the things you hear about with Teen Vogue, and I mean this as a compliment, is that, you know, Teen Vogue is, like, covering a lot more politics, it's covering a lot more about identity, it's got, like, its finger on the pulse um, in in kind of similar ways that, you know, Modern Day Pitchfork did, and that would make kind of, or just Vogue in general, but the fact that it was, you know, put into a publication that has the name, like basically men in its title. Um, yeah. I mean, the optics of it are not great. Just especially, poor, Yeah. If, if you consider, uh, 
you know, the leadership at Pitchfork in the last several years. It was led by women. Mm-hmm. There was an obvious movement to put more focus on music made by women, music by people of color, music by you know, from the LGBTQ community. Uh, which and GQ I think are all has pop- been shit, and GQ has been shifting a little more because I read GQ. Oh, of course, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not like we're talking about a Blender or something, you know, in two thousand two. <laughs> I mean, yeah, GQ, it's folding I mean, into Maxim. <laughs> I, I mean, I think GQ's done some great stuff. They did, they've done some great music profiles. True. I mean, you know, there's there's good people working there. You know, Zach Barron. I mean, Chris Chris Heath. I think is still there. He's like one of the great yeah, Alex music. Pathodemus, yeah, yeah, great profiles of all time. Um, but yeah, the optics of it, it just makes it feel like, oh, we're course correcting back to mm-hmm. something that's more like dude oriented or something. And, and and that doesn't look great. I just like want to say one other thing. You know, I, I whenever something like this happens, you know, a publication gets shuttered, website shut down, people get laid off. You you get the people coming out saying music journalism is dead. Music mm-hmm. criticism is dead. You know, everything is over. And in the case of Pitchfork, obviously, uh, it feels, I think, more intense because Pitchfork is such an established name. I mean, you feel like this was going to be the site of all sites that was going to survive. And, I mean, I'm not sure if they're done or not. People are talking about them in the past tense. I mean, we'll see how things evolve, but certainly uh, it feels like the end of an era. But I just like want to say, like, to people out there who are in their early 20s and you want to get into music writing. When Ryan Schreiber started Pitchfork, it was a situation where, you know, the internet was just getting started and you were in a situation where people had to learn about music by reading music magazines. And it was a very stifling time. Things Mm -hmm. felt very consolidated. It felt like there weren't a lot of voices being heard and you couldn't read about a lot of different kinds of music. I mean, the, the, the amount of music coverage was so narrow. I mean, if, if people complain now, Oh, like websites care too much about Taylor Swift or they care too much about Beyonce or whatever, it was way worse in the nineties because (laughs) you had these corporate magazines that the focus was so narrow. There were whole genres that never even got covered at all. Mm. I mean, certainly people can do a better job of covering different kinds of stuff now, but there's no comparison. Things are way more diverse now than they were uh, 30 years ago. But Ryan Schreiber started this site because he felt like there was music that he loved that wasn't being talked about. And he made a site and it evolved over many years And it became important because, one, it was entertaining to read. Even people who hated it, it was entertaining to hate read. You know, you could you could hate read it. I mean, look at me, man. I I we reviewed uh, Andrew WK's "I Get Wet" and uh, "Fevers and Mirrors." I was like reading this site, like, man, fuck these guys. I gotta write for them. Yeah, exactly. And I hate these guys, and I can't wait to see what they say next. You know, that was the thing. So it was one entertaining, and two. It was a place that people went to because they knew they would discover music that they loved. Like they trusted the site. It was so it was entertaining and it was useful to them. And I would say if you're young, start a blog and remember the audience. Don't write for other music writers. Don't say I'm starting a site because we need to support music writing and it's like a charity. Mm-hmm. You know, don't take that perspective. Take the perspective of, hey, there's people out there who want to be entertained, and they want to know about cool stuff. And we're going to do that for them. And if you do that, you can build something of your own. Like, music writing's not dead. Music criticism, it's not dead. You can do it. 
you just have to have a vision for it and you have to keep the audience in mind. The audience is there. They want it. You know, you got to serve them. And these things getting subsumed by corporations who don't know how to build cool stuff, this creates a lane for you. This is an opportunity for you to do something cool and pick up the baton from the previous generation. So that's my pep talk. <laughs> don't listen don't listen to the pessimistic people. There's reason for you to be inspired and you can seize the day. I'm like Robin Williams now in Dead Poet <laughs> Society. Yeah, I mean I I, I do wonder um, you know whether like whether this is going to lead to uh, I don't know like a revolution or just uh, of blogging or maybe coming back but I think I, I think of that in terms of what it was like being like uh, in the what, what some people would describe as like kind of the golden age of blogging of like you know mid aughts or what have you and st- even still like it was it, it, Pitchfork was still like kind of the sun all these blogs revolved around like I, I remember a quote from like Ryan Schreiber we were just kind of talking internally and he was like you know people when people say like oh you know why doesn't Pitchfork have a comment section he would say well the internet is our comment section and I think it'll just this is kind of like where I mean I'm I'm like sad for the state of like music criticism but I'm just it'll it'll, it'll just be kind of odd to have it not there um you know to have it just kind of like this kind of hollow space where uh, you know, even if it is functioning in a kind of an ESPN sort of way where it's just like where you go to check the scores and so forth. Um, yeah, it, it, it'll still be just such a massive adjustment. And I do wonder if there's going to be, like every time something like this happens, people talk about like a defector type site emerging, like, you know, uh, kind of similar to stereo gum, which is a you know, worker run worker owned. And by the way, I don't think we can overlook the possibility that this may be like kind of a union busting sort of thing. Uh, legal at Uproxx, please tell me if this constitutes slander. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I do. Th- when I think about that though, um, the possibility of like a defector type, you know, uprising, I, 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 I just remember what you were saying earlier, which is that defector works because they cover sports. They cover, uh, a whole number of other art forms besides music. And, you know, I do, uh, I, I just wonder like how things will evolve, how the conversation will evolve without this kind of central hub where people go to for music reviews. Because I mean, we've always talked about this theoretically, like if Pitchfork is shuttered, what happens to the music review? I think it'll still exist, but like, will it matter as much? Like I'm I mean, you've seen a lot of like bands and PR people and label people uh, talking about like how this impacts them and how they're sad about it as well. So, I mean, it is it is uh, like you said, it's very interesting and maybe interesting is like not the best word. Uh, Maybe you could say scary or foreboding, but music existed before Pitchfork, you know. And it'll exist after that. You know what I mean? Something else will come along. Because, look, the audience is there. Mm-hmm. People love music. And they want to talk about music. And they want to learn about music. And it's just a matter of someone connecting with that audience. Or mm-hmm. connecting with a audience. You know? And, and that is your job if you're going to do this for a living. You need to find an audience. And but those people are there. And they want, to, they want someone to communicate with them. And... Um, as sad as this is, and again, like, it, I don't it know. It is if sad. We should, 
why it's like but are we doing the funeral for pitchfork i, I i'm still not yeah. totally sure what is in store for them you know uh, so i'm a little reluctant to talk about them totally in the past tense until it's definitively said that they're done i mean mm-hmm. it's like they're in the hospital right now in a coma you don't know if they're gonna wake up or not i mean that's how i feel about pitchfork at the moment so i'm not i don't want to say was instead of is with them yet um but again i think if you're young because i always feel like people always dump on young people and they always say you missed it it was great 20 years ago but it's over now and now you're screwed and nothing's going to be good and because it's dead and i don't want to be that person because i i do think when you see a world where there's a void you can fill that void if you've got the right idea so that's all i would say to those people like don't be dispirited, try to look at it as an opportunity that if you're creative, you can come up with something like the new way, you know, because look, the 800 word record review with the number score next to it, that's not the only way to write about music or to review music. You it's know, not? there's other things that we, fuck. no, you can, I'm fuck other, that. <laughs> you, I mean, you could, for instance, start the world's first indie rock podcast. I mean, that <laughs> is another way to review music. Um, so anyway, I don't know. I, again, we're sad about this. Our hearts go out to the people uh, who lost their jobs. Again, I think you're all very talented people. I, I feel confident that you will be good in the long run, but I know that you put your hearts and souls into that place, and it sucks to uh, have it end this way. It just is. Mm. Well, on that note... Uh, yeah, by the way, like... Uh- we, I mean, I'm like wondering since we're on a roll, like if 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 we were gonna do an emergency podcast, I mean, we were probably gonna do one anyway because like Sunny Day Real Estate was teasing new music, and we got an Anthony Kiedis biopic. I mean, gosh, all that shit that got swept under the rug because uh, you know, of the Pitchfork uh, calamity. So yeah, yeah, I know we could do. We'll have to save some shit for next week. <laughs> yeah, we our emergency pod's gonna be as long as our regular pod, so we should stop now. Let's get to the real IndieCast. Here it is. Cue the music, Brian. IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On the show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we talk about the state of music festivals and the new Green Day album. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He hopes Nick Sirianni is fired by the time this episode posts. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? I appreciate how in a week where we lost, not lost, but you know, three godlike figures of the coaching fraternity stepped down, and then there's a guy who got to the Super Bowl just last year, on a, like given months to figure out, Hey, what if we just like blitz Jalen Hurts every single down, like a 12-year-old playing Madden? And this guy's got no answer for it at all. Like, how do you lose 32 to 9 to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and like in a game where Tampa Bay plays like complete ass? Uh it's I- I'm just fascinated by how bad this team is now. It's really something well, to behold. You- and by the way, we're doing a quick sports cast here <laughs> because uh the Eagles uh Ian's team, they had one of the worst collapses I've ever seen from a great team. I mean, they were in the Super Bowl last year. They were 10-1 and this year. Completely fell off the map. You got Nick Sirianni. Maybe he's still emotionally bereft from the National Anthem 
at last year's Super Bowl. Like, he hasn't recovered emotionally from the power of that. He's still weeping about it. Completely forgot uh, about that. Fuck. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's the thing I always think about with Nick Sirianni. That that stupid clip of him. You know, just. I mean, he seems like a buffoon to me. I can't stand that guy. He just seems like somebody who uh, wants to present a certain image of himself to the world, and it's so phony. I mean, he he's like a Joe Rogan pro coach to me. Like, he probably listens to Rogan, I would I would guess. It, it was like after uh, Blonde came out, you'd see, like, all these, like, indie guys, like, saying, like, oh, yeah, we sound like Frank Ocean. Now, we're really influenced by that. And I think he's, like, part of that coaching fraternity where, like, everyone wanted to have their own version of Sean McVay. Uh, so you get a guy who looks like they could just as easily be working in finance. Yeah, I'd, I, 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 I'm only interested in him keeping his job just to see what happens if they, like, even if the Eagles start the preseason 0-2, like, you might see an on-field revolt. I'm I'm, I'm in for that. I don't want to see a 7-9 and team. I mean, putting Matt Patricia in as the <laughs> defensive coordinator in the last two months, I mean, that is, like, an all-time move. Yeah, it's like Rob Cavallo producing the new Green Day album. Like, where has this guy been hiding the past 10? Well, I don't want to skip to the preview of the Green Day album, but that's kind of oh, the equivalent. Well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in a hurry to talk about that album. I'll, I'll say that right now. I'm dragging my feet to that conversation, but um, I feel like we're burying the lead here, <laughs> at least for me, yeah. because the Green Bay Packers, that game that they played against the Cowboys, that is the most fun I've had watching sports in about 14 years. Like since the Packers went to the Super Bowl in 2010, and it was a similar scenario that year because they went in as a wild card. And they had to win three straight road games in order to make it to the Super Bowl. I am assuming that the 49ers are going to destroy us this weekend. <laughs> I, I am not feeling confident about that. Oh, but it doesn't matter. It's like we beat the Cowboys. We're not even supposed to be here. Uh, that game against the Cowboys, it was like... And I'm sorry to be speaking in the language of Bruce Springsteen. Ian, I don't know if, if you'll appreciate this or not. But I, I to me, that the boss. That game was like listening to the Jungle Land sax solo for three hours straight. Like, that's just how it felt. It was like so just triumphant and uh, emotionally satisfying. You couldn't throw in like a Bodine's reference, like something a little more geographically specific. I'm just saying, the Bodine's catalog, as much as I respect it, does not have a moment sufficiently triumphant i guess you could Fair say enough. the opening guitar riff of closer to free <laughs> the way that sounds maybe you could say that although i wouldn't want to listen to that for three straight hours but in the nfc playoffs you've got the packers lions and buccaneers all from the division of my youth the nfc central right the old nfc central because it's the nfc north now and the bucks are in the in the nfc south but the nfc central representing we're probably all going to lose to the 49ers, but that's okay. I still love that the Central is representing. Shout out to Detroit, by the way. Love Detroit. Love the Lions. Uh, I don't know if we've ever gotten a letter or an email from Detroit, but uh, I'm sure we've got some IndyCast listeners there. We've gotten from uh, so like other parts of Michigan, not yeah. necessarily Detroit. Like Detroit's maybe a little too uh, highfalutin for IndyCast. We like the more kind of uh, sur- Ex-urban uh, centers of Michigan culture. Uh, who are the current indie standard bears 
situated in Detroit? Like, is Greek Death from Detroit, or they just they're from, from Flint? Okay. Yeah, Detroit. Um, well, but I'm sure they're Lions fans. Greek Death, they got to be Lions fans. Yeah, I think so. We 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 got a few. Um, well, historically though, you obviously you've got Sparge. the fans from the '60s. Well, yeah, that's. I was going to say the Stooges. You can go to Sponge right away. I was going to say the Stooges, MC5. You got Bob Seeger. And then you get a little bit later, uh, you've got obviously the White Stripes. You got the band that Jack White beat up. Uh, <laughs> the Von Bondies. Von bon- I cannot believe Von Bondies. Brain farted on that one. Well, I remember, I was about to say Von Bondies. There was no brain fart okay. there. I just thought it'd be funnier to describe them as the band that. Jack White beat up. <laughs> don't, hey man, don't step to me on my knowledge of Upper Midwest <laughs> rock, okay? I am the kingpin of rock critics talking about the Upper Midwest. Um, but uh, anyway, great game by the Packers. Sorry about the Eagles. Do you want Sirianni gone? Because I, I, you said that you kind of want him to hang around just to see what happens. Yeah. I, are you joking there? Or, no, or I want him hoping... to suffer. Like, I, 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 I want... Like, just because, like, I agree with you in that when I look at his face, uh, I just see someone who is, like, so over their head and wrongfully so. Like, I like the I like Detroit because, like, Dan Campbell, like, even though I think his whole bit is a little bit, like, full of shit, at least he, like, fully buys into it. Um, yeah, I think that Nick Sirianni is, like, some version of, like, the tech bro CEO that's been put up as head coach. I need him to suffer. Like, they... He needs to suffer the repercussions for this past year. Because what I see is that if he gets fired now, some team's going to like pick him up as like an offensive consultant. And then two years later, he'll be like interviewing for the Panthers job. What if you get a shot at Belichick? What if he wants to come to Philly? I mean, you want Belichick over He's got the disposition. Right? He's, Belichick's got the disposition for Philly. I'd be into it. But I think this team is just so fundamentally broken. They just got to fumigate the place. I just feel like Belichick there makes all the sense in the world, and I think he could turn it around pretty quickly because you've got a great team. It's just like vibes. Your offense, yeah, it's bad vibes, but it's like you know they're showing like the replays of the offense, and there's like nobody in the middle of the field. <laughs> it just seems like they're just playing backyard football or yeah. something. There's Again, like, no... like me, like playing Madden. Like let's do four verts. Like that's their only. That's their only thing that they do. They do like curls or verts, and like that's like when I'm like just kind of zoning out playing Ma- like playing Madden or NCAA football. I'm like, yeah, I'll just pick this play, whatever. All right. Well, okay. Enough sportscast. For now. We'll stop that for now. Um, let's do a fantasy uh, update. Uh, you are on the board already. You picked the uh, Kelly Uchis record that dropped on Friday. Currently has a Metacritic score of 87. Uh, is that above your expectations, or is that what you thought uh, she was going to be able to do for you? Uh, yeah, I felt like eighties, like mid eighties, was what I was looking for. And you know what? This is actually a good album. Not like actually, I know they're an acclaimed artist, but I really enjoyed this album. I listened to it while watching the Lions uh, this weekend, and I was surprised by like, how much reverb is on it. Like between that and like the ethereal kind of singing and lyrics, I can't understand because they're in Spanish. It's kind of like a dream pop album. Yeah, yeah, it's a good record. Yeah, and it was a very good choice. Again, I don't have a ton. Of confidence in my lineup versus your lineup. I think you had a really good draft. Again, the Jazz pick. I thought, man, that's a really good pick. <laughs> um, I actually wanted to do a little uh, proposition with you here because 
A new Faye Webster album was announced, I think, the day after we recorded. It might have been the day that the episode posts posted last week. Uh, Faye Webster, again, very acclaimed artist. She's definitely on the rise. I feel like this record is a slam dunk. And she was a second uh, liner at Coachella, I think. Yeah, she's really blowing up. She's doing very well. So, you know, I wanted to propose a little trade with you. You could say no, <laughs> but this is what I'm proposing. You let me take Faye Webster. I'll give you 75 points and a guaranteed first-round pick in the next draft. And you can pick first or you can pick second and get the two picks. But, I'm, but I'll just give you 75 points that you just can add right now to your score. So you, and you get a guaranteed first-round pick. So you get like six, I, six choices now? Yeah, but you have right. You have like seventy five points, mm. so just added to your score. So you don't have another record, but you have like this. I'm not, it's like I'm giving you a pile of money essentially, <laughs> and then I'm and I'm trading a like a. I'm giving you a guaranteed first round pick. Mm. Do you accept that trade? Well, I'm trying to think of the mechanics of it. You see, I'm like tempted because. Uh, the, I heard the, uh, Faye Webster song with Lil Yachty and I didn't think it was very good. I'm like wondering if this artist has peaked, but 75 points, I guarantee she's going to top that. So, uh, the guaranteed first pick, I, I am so trusting of my ability to find diamonds in the rough that that is not a compelling choice. So I'll think it through. I'm not saying no definitively, but you might have to sweeten the offer. What if I give you 80? Hmm. Uh, you know, I think that the I, I think that the modern uh, critical uh, I, I think the state of critical uh, thinking right now like guarantees that Faye Webster is gonna get at least an eighty four. So, not there yet. So, are you officially turning down the offer, or are you? I, I will let you. It? I will let you switch out any of your choices for Faye Webster. Just straight up trade. Hmm. Yeah, you get hmm. you get to do a redo. All right, I, I got to dig out my lineup here. Where <laughs> was that? Uh, let, let me let me look here for a sec. Uh, let's see you, my lineup. Okay, I've got I've got the smile. I have Julia Holter. Right. I have Serpent with Feet. I have Mannequin Pussy. I have Katie Kirby. Okay, um, I'll take out Serpent with Feet and put in Faye Webster. Can I think I that, that yeah, I think that's a good call. Like I, you know, I I was a little bit uh, skeptical about that one for you because yeah, I, I get the strategy. It's kind of you know they're an established kind of left to center R and B leaning artist, but I do wonder if that artist has peaked. So uh, yeah, I think it, just to make it more interesting, yeah, you trade uh, okay. Serpent with Feet with for uh, Faye Webster. I'll so this that. is pure charity. I don't have to give you any compensation. I don't have to give you like a future draft guarantee or anything you're just letting me do this nope we're we're yep just out of the kindness of my heart all right i'll take the charity i'll take the charity i am not a proud man i will take <laughs> out serpent with feet i'm putting in faye webster now i feel really good about my lineup i feel good i think this is going to be a good matchup uh you won the first draft so i i have to try to even it up here but i'm feeling pretty good about it so i I guess I feel like a little uh, emasculated that you just let me do this. Like I feel like maybe <laughs> that was not the uh, intent, but I can see okay. that perspective. All right. 
right, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna feel that way. I'm just gonna take the charity and move on. Sometimes you need a little helping hand in life. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, let's talk about music festivals. Ian, this is a topic that you and I start talking about usually around this time of year because this is when the big festivals start announcing their lineups and the biggest festival of all announced this week, which is Coachella. And, um, you know, we're getting to the point, and I think I'm already probably well past this <laughs> point, where I don't know if I'm a good judge of lineups for these kinds of festivals because, to me... This lineup looks kind of weak, but I'm not a 22-year-old college student from Southern California. <laughs> you know, like I am a 46-year-old man from Minnesota. I am probably the last person that uh, what is it? Golden Voice. Golden They're the Voice. Ones yeah, that put, yeah. I'm like the last person they care about. But anyway, for the headliners, we have Lana Del Rey, Tyler the Creator, and uh, Doja Cat. Uh, and, and no doubt. Got, like, they, I love that at the end. And no doubt. <laughs> yeah, and like, okay, yeah. So at the end they have and, and then they have like the dot, 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 no doubt. Like, what does that mean? <laughs> does that mean that they're headlining on Sunday too with Doja Cat? Or I think it's maybe like soccer or whatever you, where you got like the striker you put in for like the last 10 minutes. Because we, as we remember last year, like Frank Ocean had to tap out and they just happen. Oh, we got Blink-182 ready to go. So yeah, just bring out like your... 90s uh, ska adjacent, pop punk adjacent SoCal artist, just in case, you know, Doja Cat or uh, Tyler the Creator somehow decides that, you know, this isn't worth their time. But I don't think that, I don't think that Golden Voice has completely forsaken our, our, our demographic because if the thing that stood out the most to me about the lineup is that blur, like even after two, the disaster of 2013 that we've mentioned many a time on this podcast. They still have a bigger font than like Ice Spice, right? <laughs> like, yeah, they, who is they're this like for? The, the, <laughs> they're like the second performer listed on Saturday. Yeah, you have Tyler the Creator number one, who is a very worthy headliner, along with Lana Del Rey, Doja Cat. It is there is kind of like a weird thing here where they have no doubt below well they're not even like in the proper part <laughs> of the poster. They're like kind of set apart. It's kind of like when you look at. Like when you go to a movie and they decide like they're gonna put like all the actors and then they say and Robert <laughs> De Niro as the grandpa or something like that's what No Doubt is and this is like a No Doubt reunion right like aren't they not together I don't know I, I, I honestly don't know uh, like they they've always been in that sort of status of like I maybe they're around hiatus but. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, do they have the juice in Southern California? I guess, you know, <laughs> people care about no doubt there still. I mean, absolutely. Especially when you look at this lineup where you have sublime, not with Rome, but with Bradley Knoll's son, who's the same right. age as Bradley Knoll when he died. Um, right. they, they were waiting for that. They're like, okay, we got to wait until he's Bradley Knoll's age and then we're going to plug him in. Geez. And they just like got rid of Rome. Like <laughs> they used to be sublime with Rome. Now it's just Sublime. I'm surprised they didn't go with, like, Sublime with Bradley Knoll's son. Like, that could have been part of the new band title. But now it's like, oh, we have, we have like, a DNA link to the original lead singer, so we can just go back to just being known as Sublime. Yeah, like Zach Starkey status. Well, no, no, I'm not going to make fun of Zach Starkey. I know that you're, 
Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. Come on. He's great. <laughs> I love Zach Starkey. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Jacob Noel will surprise us. Uh, maybe he can play guitar like, you know, better than a motherfucking riot. Um, oh, my God. But, you uh, know, the Sublime thing... <laughs> People keep trying to critically rehab Sublime. Can we nip that in the bud? I'm sorry. I've defended a lot of questionable 90s rock. Yeah. So maybe I'm not the person to be throwing stones here. But, like, Sublime sucks. They suck, man. I hate Sublime. They have, like, three or four songs that are still on the radio all the time. And it is instant groaner for me when they come on. I'm sorry. I smoked weed in the mid-90s, too. (laughs) I've got memories of listening to 40 Ounces to Freedom. When I was 19, it was pretty fun back then. But come on, nostalgia has its limits. That band sucks ass. Yeah, between them and also, we don't get Blink-182 this year, but we get the Aquabats, which is you know Travis Parker's old band. I do wonder if the drummer from uh, No Doubt, uh, a- Adrian something or other, looks at like Travis Parker and thinks, that should have been me. Because like you could tell from those old videos, or just No Doubt's entire thing, that he really saw himself as like the SoCal pop punk drummer that was going to be on reality television. That guy just got completely Wally pipped up in there. Um, yeah, I, it's funny. Like you, like I, I don't like sublime as a matter of fact, what I got is one of my least favorite songs of all time. I think blink way kind of suck. Um, it's really amazing that I actually live in Southern California, given the representatives they had sent to alt rock radio at that time. Cause you had no doubt Hey baby, another song I cannot fucking stand for the life of me. I'll do I do like some no doubt songs. Sublime, Blink 182, like I could not for years, for decades, I thought that was what Southern California was really like and it still kind of is, but yeah, I, I am I'm not I am not going to be down for the no doubt revival which is, you know, we got to write about something. There's no demand for that. There's no demand for that. I'm sorry. There's no demand. No one's asking for No Doubt to come back. You, you, if you care about No Doubt, you can, you know, hope for a Gwen Stefani like you know solo record or whatever. I mean, no one, no one is clamoring for No Doubt to come back. It, it, in this context, it makes no sense. I mean, I, who's going to show up for that? Who's going to show up for Blur here? <laughs> like the like the, like the people, uh, you know. The people who are going to be coming out for Ice Spice and Tyler the Creator and like, oh my God, Grimes! I Grimes cannot wait. I, that, that's the that's one I'm the most excited about. Like, because what the hell are they going to do? Like, because oh they haven't God. put out an album in four years, um, and they've more or less existed the past couple of years as like on the same sort of level as Azealia Banks, like more of a poster than a musician, but. Uh, here's the thing that stands out to me about the Coachella festival or the Coachella headliners. Now, I remember in 2016, I'd gone to Coachella like every year from 2008, to 2015. And once 16 came through, I'm like, damn, man, this is like different generation. Uh, I'm kind of done here. Like, imagine if you're like a music writer who began in 2011 and all the like Tyler, the creator, Lana Del Rey uh, are headliners. I mean, like, No, like, with all due respect, like, you could tell, this, like, if you told me, like, this was, like, Pitchfork Festival headliners, I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, that's a good get for them, but not out of the question. Like, I I do wonder if they do have, like, headliner, um, you know, capacity. I'm sure they do, but it still seems like, man, these don't seem like major gets. Yeah, I mean, and again, this might be generationally influenced i mean there, yeah. there, there might be a generation uh 
<laughs> where that makes sense. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, Lana Del Rey to me does seem like a headliner at a Coachella. Tyler the Creator, I guess I would put him to Doja Cat. I'm like a little. Well, I think they got the most juice as a pop artist right now out of the three. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, again with these festivals, and I want to, I want to pivot in a in a second to like a broader conversation about these festivals because there is something. I don't know. It's not something new going on. I think it's like a, a continuation of a trend where it seems really obvious at this point that this is where we're going, that these are just based on streaming algorithms, like these the booking of these festivals. Because there used to be this idea that festivals had their like specific identity, and it felt like there were actual human curators behind picking the acts on the bill, and that you know, this festival had a certain kind of festival, a certain kind of sensibility versus maybe another kind of festival. And certainly there's lots of music festivals out there, particularly the smaller ones, where I think you can still find that. But these like gargantuan ones, like the main ones, just seem increasingly interchangeable. Did you look at the Bonnaroo uh, <laughs> festival lineup? Like that is bananas because, you know, Bonnaroo back in the day, was the jam band right. festival. Or if not explicitly jam band, it would be jam adjacent crunchy. I th- I'd say crunchy. Crunchy. And but you would also get like Radiohead did one of their most famous shows at Bonnaroo. Oh yeah. And and it was like um you know like bands that are known for live performance, you know, as opposed to just being a, a successful pop act. Like Doja Cat, for instance there's no question that she's a successful pop act, but sometimes successful pop acts, it doesn't translate to being a great live act or even like a, a live act that a lot of people want to see. You know, there's lots of people that stream well, but they don't have like a live following. Mm-hmm. And like Bonnaroo was like the live following type festival. And you look at it now and like the poster looks like every other poster that you see and the lineup is like all over the place. You've got, okay, as headliners, you have Post Malone, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Fred Again. Mm-hmm. Fred Again. Do you know who Fred Again is? I do know. Like, this- So when you say that like it doesn't focus on the live act, I think about like how people say that Odessa, which is a like a like will be on every festival headliner for like a he- like top line for like the next 10 years. Apparently they got a really awesome live show. Fred again is a DJ uh, or like a producer, uh, sort of like if I, I think it's to um, let's say what Creed is to Pearl Jam, Fred again is to Jamie XX. I, I don't think that's mm. like a perfect formulation, but it's sort of that uh, that style of music, but just blown up to a much, 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 much more pop sensibility. I've listened to Fred Again stuff. It is in the realm of things I could or should like, but I find it a little bit like tasteful and boring. But no, nah, that 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 guy's got juice. Yeah, and I'm looking because so he's the headliner on Sunday, right. uh, June sixteenth. You get to the second line. You have Megan Thee Stallion, Jason Isbell. Two friends. I don't know I who assume, that is. I assume that's like another electronic act. Mm-hmm. And then Carly Ray Jepsen. It's like you're just pulling random people and throwing them together. Like, Je- uh, well, every- uh, under the Chili Peppers, you have Cage the Elephant, which, okay, right. you know, local act, I guess. Cigarettes After Sex, Diplo, and John Baptiste. Um, 
okay. <laughs> like, yeah, it, it just, it, there's no coherence at all to this. It just feels like we're just pulling stuff that an algorithm is spitting out and throwing it on a bill. Like, is, I mean, look, people listen to different kinds of music, so I don't want to say that, oh, like, if you like Jason Isbell, you're not going to care about Megan Thee Stallion. I'm sure there's people out there that like both of those artists, but I, I just feel like... You know, I I was looking at the governor's ball. Oh man, that one's great. Lineup two, and that poster looks exactly like the Bonnaroo poster. By the way, it's like the same kind of font. I think it's the same color scheme. It just looks like there's some festival poster maker that everyone's going to. It's like the Kinkos of online poster makers, and they're using the same template for all these. But the, I just feel like the lineups are increasingly random and chaotic seeming and i don't know what i don't know what the logic here is other than we're trying to draw on lots of different kinds of people and we know that when they get here they're going to spend a significant amount of time just talking to their friends and not really even caring who's on stage so it's just about getting people in the door it's about like if there's one person on the bill that can appeal to somebody you're just going to broaden your reach and you're going to guarantee a sellout. I mean, does that, am I off base here? Cause like these festival lineups don't make sense to me otherwise. I think they make sense to me in the sense that like, it just reflects the kind of streaming or like kind of randomness of modern fandom. And also like one thing that does stand out to me is how, um, you know, for years there was every single year, there would be uh, some article about how Coachella has, you know, diverted itself away from its rock origins to like pop. And now I, I start to see on these festivals, these like, you know, festivals that started out as rock festivals, putting in artists that even like the Poptimist uh, critics kind of drag on like Bebe Rexa and Dominic Fike and, uh, you know, Renee Rapp. Uh, I like names that I'm familiar with just from seeing them. I don't know their music, but um, I... <laughs> I do think that, like, it's not random to me. It's just, like, this is the state of festivals and just kind of... It it, it reflects where we're at currently. Do I like it? Not really. But, again, this stuff's not for me. I do I do wonder, not so much about, like, the top, top of the heap festivals like Coachella or Bonnaroo, but, like, Hangout, like, the Hangout Fest, the one that takes place in Alabama, like, where you get... Hey, we got the Killers. We got Odessa. We got uh, Post Malone. It's it, it, th- those to me just seem a little bit sad because it's like when a couple that's hey, what do you want to do for dinner, and they just decide to get Chinese for like the five billionth time. It's like I, I like, are you excited to say, hey, we got the Killers this year. We got Odessa. I, maybe I just need to see Odessa. Maybe that needs to be like an indie cast road trip where we actually see Pretty Lights or Fisher. Or, like, Fred again, or these artists where, you know, as 40-something indie listeners, we don't quite understand the appeal. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take a pass on that road trip, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, being in a car for a long time, and then at the end of it is seeing, yeah, some shitty festival seems really depressing. Yeah, I mean, the Killers, they're a headliner at Governor's Ball, and it seems like they have, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers slot at Bonnaroo. Like, yeah. you need, I guess, one grizzled rock band. <laughs> You know, yeah, Coachella used to or, do that too, but they 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 stopped. Well, they have Blur this year, they, and no doubt, I mean that's oh, what yeah. those bands are at that place. And then you, you mentioned Hangout Fest. Yeah, this is like another just crazy 
top line of the of the of the poster. You've got Zach Bryan, big country star, Lana Del Rey, of course, Odessa, of course, and then you get the Chainsmokers. Sure. <laughs> the next line. They were available. And then Cage the Elephant again. Dominic Fike, Renee Rapp, Jesse Murph, and then it just descends from there. Cage the Elephant, of course, this revives one of my favorite indie cast bits of all time where we try to figure out if if it's about caging an elephant or if the <laughs> elephant is named Cage. And I feel like every time this comes up, we figure out the answer, but then I instantly forget it. So, like, this bit, it never grows old for me. Just imagining. Like, do you know what it is? Is it about caging an elephant or is the elephant named Cage? I wish we had this conversation when I lived in Kentucky because there would be so many people who went to Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green where they were from and they would have these, like, oh, we saw Cage the Elephant at this bar or what have you, like, you know, when I went to UVA, how people would talk about Dave Matthews Band. Um, I, maybe I'll just get in touch with the people I went to, uh, did my dietetic internship with in Kentucky. I'm going to find this out. Also, yeah. we should probably, like, uh, do we got to do a yay or nay or Cage the Elephant because, like, we got to, like, actually listen to this, you know? It, I, uh, I feel like they were invented to open up for the Black Keys. <laughs> On yeah. tour, you know. Yeah, I, I feel like that was their that was their lane. We're going to be the opening act for the Black Keys when they play arenas. Yeah, but and I guess be, now it's they might be as big, if not bigger. Well, yeah, I mean now they're like we're going to be on the second line of the poster. We're going to be the one rock band between like an electronic act and like a uh, you know pop star on Spotify that has way more streams than. <laughs> you would ever guess you know and then you have cage the elephant there like that's their role yeah the black keys not like the the band that was uh contrasted with uh jack white in uh your band your favorite band is killing me not to be confused with the band that jack white beat up yes exactly <laughs> which is the von bondies a name i would never ever forget all right so we finally get to the conversation i've been dreading for the past <laughs> half hour uh, we're gonna talk about saviors this is the new album by Green Day. It's out today. It's their 14th studio record. It's the first studio record by Green Day that I can remember listening to in a while. Uh, we were talking before we started recording, and I was very impressed because you actually remember the name of the last Green Day record, which was called... Father of All Motherfuckers? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I don't want to like confirm that, but that sounds right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think, and I think you know, for when they sold it at Walmart or whatever, it was called Father of All. Right. Ellipses. Right. Um, and my memory of that is that it came out right before the pandemic, and there were all these billboards that they were putting up to advertise the record, and it was like no Swedish DJs, no dancing girls, just rock or something <laughs> yeah. like that do you remember that campaign i i absolutely do that's about the only thing i remember about it like i don't i have forgotten the fact that it was like a 26 minute long album you're right it came out oh, February really? 2020 um okay. yeah and you know of course we had to you know clown the uh, no sweetest djs but you know we're gonna talk about like how that might seem like silly to people like us, but I do think that was some pretty good messaging to solidify the type of person who'd be interested in a Green Day album in the 2020s. But yeah, I mean, you could you could have told me that uh, th they had put out like three albums since then 
or that that time where they made like what was it Uno Dos Trace where they made like three albums, right? Um, you know, was that the one before? Were those the ones before that one? Uh, so that came out in like twenty twelve. Revolution Radio. I'm like straight up looking at Wikipedia. <laughs> like I, I can. I'm not gonna front like I actually know this shit. Uh, also Woodstock 1994. They they released an album of that in 2019. Mm, okay. Yeah. Did well, you, you know? Did you know? I was. I didn't know that. You know, I I was starting to think that maybe Green Day had gone soft, <laughs> and then they put out a record called Father of All Motherfuckers, and I was like, Damn, oh, jokes on me, man. These guys are still as hard as ever. Um, I DM'd you while <laughs> I was listening to this new Green Day album. And look, okay, we're going to have a broader conversation about Green Day in a minute. I don't mean to just, like, clown on Green Day. There are songs that there's that I like. And I there's, like, Billy Joe Armstrong, I think, is a good songwriter. Uh, they have some definite highlights in their past. But I DM'd you listening to this record. And I was just like, this album sucks. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, this album just flat out sucks. I was so embarrassed listening to it. You know, God. Like, that first song where he's like... Uh, the American dream is killing me. Yeah, it's like a bad version of that Menzinger song, America, You're Freaking Me <laughs> Out, which if you're like making shitty uh, Menzinger songs, man. Or like, do you want to be my girlfriend? Like that song, which yeah. is like sounds like bottom shelf Weezer. I mean, there's just so many songs on this record that I think exhibit the worst side of Green Day, which is the overblown really just desperate to get on the radio side combined with this like misplaced sense of like political self-righteousness that I have never felt was Green Day in their best mode. Like after American Idiot, they got miscast, I think, as Mm. a political band. Like after, you know, the first, you know, 10 years of them being a famous rock band, they were known as like this goofy punk band like that wrote fun catchy radio songs and now all of a sudden with american idiot they were they were like the punk rock u2 like they were gonna be you know making serious political statements and like with this new record you know the messaging on it is well it's coming 20 years after american idiot and 30 years after dookie so it's like a combination of those records or something and i've seen the word satire used to describe this record Uh. and to connected to American <laughs> Idiot. Like, the Rolling Stone review used the word satire. I think Armstrong himself has used the word satire. And I feel like I'm losing my mind <laughs> when I see this because satire involves irony. You know, you need somebody... like For satire to work, what you're doing, basically, is you are saying something that you don't really believe for comedic effect in order to make fun of some institution and in some way maybe expose the truth about that institution. So Stephen Colbert acting like a Bill O'Reilly-like talk show host, that is satire. Or Stanley Kubrick making a film about maniacs and creeps and the government who started a nuclear war, like that's satire. Billy Joe Armstrong saying, I don't want to be an American idiot, like that is not satire. There's no irony there. You know, he's saying how he feels. Like, and Green Day f- songs have never been funny, at least not on purpose, you know? So that whole thing, I think, ascribes a level of intelligence that it just seems totally misplaced to me with Green Day. But anyway, that's my little <laughs> rant about that. But um, 
I don't know. Do you like this record? Am I like <laughs> off base? Because I, I think it flat out sucks. I think it's getting good reviews. I've seen people call it like sure. their best album in, you know, since American Idiot. Um, and I don't get it. I mean, the production by Rob Cavello, as you said, you know, he's a longtime collaborator with Green Day. It's so bland and over the top. And it's mixed by Chris Lord Alge, who's like a, a notorious, you know, mixer who just makes everything just takes all the subtlety out of every song that he mixes and just makes it sound like a big shiny wall of sound that bludgeons you repeatedly. I mean, I don't know. I, I just think this record is like way overblown and kind of ugly and I, I, I really don't like listening to it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I well, I don't think it's particularly good. You know, I, I think we just kind of have to like, you know, set the stakes for this. Um, I cannot overstate the importance Green Day had for people of our age growing up. Like, I, you know, of course I own Dookie, like 30 million other people. I never really cared about the band that much. Like, it was never an important record to me. But yeah, I played When I Come Around and Brain Stew with the guy I knew in middle school at a drum set. But Here's, I don't know if this is like a shocking revelation, but I've never actually listened to American Idiot. Um, you know, like mm. you, you mentioned that it was like satire or what have you, but it remi- well, it's not. I'm saying it's not oh, yeah. satire, but like or seen as are, it, you know, but or, or an I important guess, political I statement. I mean, like we could talk a lot about just how weak the you know political music was in 2004, but um. You know, in retrospect, the, like the reason I never bothered to listen to American Idiot, despite all the critical acclaim or it see, being seen as like, you know, the new London calling or whatever, is that uh, in retrospect, it strikes me as like what a lot of quote resistance pop was uh, during like, let's say 2017 or 18. It's like, yeah, I get the point. Like, I don't find this to be particularly uh, energizing as a political statement. And plus, I hear the singles everywhere. Like, I don't need to you know, follow through with this. But, uh, and, and of course, if I've never listened to American Idiot, you can be sure, you can be sure I've never given Revolution Radio or 20th Century Breakdown uh, a solid listen. And yeah, I listened to this album. It sounded extremely overproduced. Like, I wouldn't necess- I wouldn't be able to tell like right off the bat this was a Green Day album. I would have assumed this is like one of those like British post-Arctic Monkeys rock acts that is, gets, is massively popular in the UK. Um, but the, Green Day, I, I'm not mad about this album because I feel like Green Day exists in uh, this, I guess I would describe it as like a post-quality sphere of like Metallica, Chili Peppers, Weezer, just these albums that come out and they're instantly memory hold aside from like the 24-hour fitness I go to near my work that shows videos from like Latter-day, Kings of Leon, Blackberry Smoke, and Tantric albums. Also, I saw a 2023 Candlebox album at that gym. They put out an album last year. Like, I'm not making this shit up. Also, I saw the video for, like, Tip of My Tongue at least a dozen times in the past year. But I think the question I have about Green Day is, like, do they still have, like, not, not fans. I know they have fans, but, like, people who really vouch for them because... Teens wear Metallica t-shirts all the time nowadays. And, you know, Blink-182 has reestablished their relevance. The Chili Peppers always bring out, like, really good tour headliners. And even, like, every shitty Weezer album, like, gets one or two people ranking their records. But, like, who are the Green Day people? 
Like, uh, do they still got hitters out there? I, I don't know. I mean, they're playing stadium, so I assume that that's not just like 50-year-olds who bought Dookie 30 years ago. I mean, I would imagine that they are a band that if you're 11 or 12 years old and you're just starting to get into like rock music, they seem like a natural uh, you know, entry point for people because they do have, like the Chili Peppers, a ton of songs that still get played yeah. on the radio all the time. Like I hear Green Day songs in the wild all the time. And I'll say after, you know, being very harsh about saviors, you know, in a broader sense, I appreciate what Green Day does as a radio band. I, I have listened to American Idiot. I've listened to Dookie. I've listened to a lot of other Green Day albums. I actually have some affection for the albums they put out between Dookie and American Idiot uh, that didn't do as well, like Insomniac and Nimrod. I think there's some good songs on there. I do feel like my experience with Green Day albums is that I usually start to feel a little sick of it by the end of it. Like I, I, I feel like the perfect amount of Green Day is about three or four minutes on the radio. And, you know, mm. if, if it's when I come around or basket case or brain stew or, uh, you know. Redundant's my uh, personal favorite, but I don't think that ever gets played on the radio. Or even like Geek Stink Breath. I'll throw that song <laughs> out there from uh, Insomniac. Yeah. That's a good song. Um, but, uh, you know, my take on Billy Joe Armstrong is that he's a guy who sings in a fake British accent. He plays in a fake punk band and he engages in fake political commentary to conceal the fact that he's just a guy that writes really good, catchy rock songs. Like I think his strength as a songwriter is his melodic sense. He's really good with choruses. Mm -hmm. He's good with melody. He writes songs that are very durable on the radio. And that is a talent that I appreciate, but like all the stuff around it tends to turn me off a little bit. And, you know, I feel like I'm among the only rock critics that actually, is interested in late career albums by legacy bands. <laughs> if only because I, I'm fascinated by the arc of people's careers. And I'm I'm very interested in like what a band does when they're in their 50s. And they don't really need to make records anymore, but like they want to make records. But like there's not really an audience necessarily for that music. I, I just think that's an interesting dynamic. And I like to see uh, how bands react to that. So like in that sense, I'm like, I'm interested in this record. But... I have to say that like my least favorite kind of legacy rock record is the we're trying to prove that we're still hard yeah. type record. And like that's what every Metallica album is now. You know, I feel like Green Day they really try to underline the fact that like we're still punk, we're still you know <laughs> calling out the man and all that stuff yeah. and I'm like this is our only hope to defeat the Donald Trump uh Republic I know you're making a Trump record yeah. <laughs> like really come on man it's like I just don't think that's his strength I think his strength is writing really catchy songs I kind of wish he would just make just just make a pure power pop record just lean into that part of what you do that would be more interesting to me than like oh okay the American dream is killing me okay great like that song is not going to surprise me coming from this band right I mean, it's I do think it's 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 worthwhile, like you know, compare them to Metallica. Because every Metallica album, like you say, is like, oh, we still got it, you know. Like, forget about Load, forget about Reload, forget about S and M. Like, we can still fuck around and make another Ride the Lightning. And with Green Day, Green Day is just fascinating to me because, like, they're they're seen as this 
the lumped in with this post this idea of like post nirvana oh the dream of the 90s is dead no one gives a shit about cred anymore it's all pop punk and like bush and sponge this is our second sponge reference of the episode um whereas like very few bands cared more about cred than green day from the jump um and that's where insomniac comes in it's like that was their reaction to making like a 30 like times platinum album and um you know you see like it's in like it's interesting to see what happened after Dookie because they started to become like this kind of modest Brit pop influence band on Warning and uh, you know Nimrod and those were pretty good albums. Like you, they were right. they, they were going to be like this band that just made really good radio singles and then American Idiot happened and then the next twenty years like Green Day like thought well I guess we kind of have to be the Clash in some right. way. Well, or or like the uh, like the stadium rock version of the Clash, right? You know, not even we like, make the, ca- like the... we make combat rock every single album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or and, and not even because combat rock rock is actually like a pretty like varied album. There's like some weird songs in there, but it's like if the only Clash song you ever heard was "Should I Stay or Should I Go," like that is like what Green Day is. Like that is like if you're only sort of conception of like what the clash can be just like the most straightforward rock radio version of that. And there has been this sort of like gigantism to their music that I don't think always serves it well, even though I do like the singles from American idiot. Um, but I, but again, like, you know, the first green day song that really hit with people is a song about like masturbation, right? You know, like that was their lane. <laughs> like they were flinging boogers at people and they were throwing mud at Woodstock 94. And, you know, they, they were in that lane before Blink-182 came along and kind of took it from them. But yeah, they were just like the goofy, obnoxious punk band that wrote really catchy songs that you heard a million times. And then it's like, oh, I wonder what Billy Joe Armstrong thinks about George W. Bush. Like <laughs> yeah. That became something that the culture cared about. And I don't know. I just feel like that is not what I personally want from that band or think that they do particularly well. Yeah, but when you look back at 2004, there was just so little uh, in terms, like, we in the past, you know, in the past, like, eight some odd years, we're just so used to, like, every piece of pop or rock music having some sort of political valence. It's, like, hard to remember back in 2004 just how fucking weak that all felt. Um, and so, like, an album like American Idiot might actually be seen as, like, a what's going on for its times. Uh, stra- strange times. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are people that were, you know, 12 years old <laughs> yeah. when that album came out and they thought and it meant something to them. I mean, I, I, I'm not... I'm not putting that down. I mean, I think that's a legitimate feeling to have. Uh, you know, if you're in middle school, I, I could definitely see how that hit differently than it would if, you know, you were my age when that album came out. All right, we now reach the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, this should come as no surprise. Um, I want to talk about the new Glass Beach album, the second Glass Beach album, which is actually not called the second Glass Beach album like the first Glass Beach album. It's actually called Plastic Death. I have to stop myself from calling it Plastic Beach, uh, and they're aware of that too. Um, But this album is out today. Um, It is, I, I would describe it as 
it's pro it's like Radiohead circa in rainbows, but slightly more prog and emo at the same time. Um, mm. Yeah, it's uh, the uh, review that Chris DeVille did over at Stereo Gum brings up, and I I love this uh, dismemberment plan uh, circa change, but also mid aughts blog rock. So obviously I love it, and we also I also have a very very lengthy interview up. Uh, this week at Uproxx, it's fascinating because, like, you know, they took five years to make this record and more or less sort of disappeared in that time since. And I think it is a testament to, you know, what happens when you give certain bands five years to make a new record um, because they all have, like, just super awesome chops. It's very impressive technically, uh, just full of imagination. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I was worried that, like, COVID and any number of things would stop them from making another record. And I'm interested to see how the audience uh, for this record has evolved since then because it was a really out-of-nowhere success in 2019. And, God, so much has changed since then. But, yeah, this is one of my favorite records of the year. I would not be totally shocked if it was end-to-end album of the year for me. But, um, yeah, if we get five records better than this one this year, 2024 has been very kind to us. So I am going to plug a column I wrote this week. Uh, it's about Radiohead. I wrote a, a, a list column where I not only ranked Radiohead albums, I incorporated all of the solo albums and side projects. And this is inspired, of course, because there's a new Smile record that comes out next week called Wall of Eyes. I assume we'll talk about it on the show next week, but I write about that album in the column. But, uh, you know, there was a thing this month on social media where people were debating about, you know, like, what is the best Radiohead album? Some people said In Rainbows. There's other people who say Kid A. OK Computer, of course, is out there in the conversation. But, you know, Radiohead, it's a fun band to talk about this with because they have multiple great albums that, in a way, cater to different constituencies because they are the rare band that has put out career-defining work in multiple decades and they appeal to different generations. So that was fun to get into. But again, I had to take it to the next level, not only talking about In Rainbows and Kid A, but I'm getting into like the There Will Be Blood score and Tom York, uh, Tomorrow's Modern Boxes <laughs> and Adams for Peace and how does that compare to The King of Limbs and A Moonshape Pool. So... Uh, that column went up on third. Uh, I'm sorry, it went up on Wednesday. It's been up all week. Uh, that was a lot of fun to write. So please check that out on uprocks.com. And then we will, I'm sure, talk about the smile on the show next week. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news, reviews, and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 